Hello there. In this episode, we discuss 2020's Come True. Directed by Anthony Scott Burns, we discuss topics such as the tenets of Jungian psychology. We talk about unconscious motivations and the collective unconscious. We also discuss the million-year-old man in all of us. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Yeah, how's it going? Did you sleep well? No, I slept terribly. Oh, God, really? Yeah, this dream that I was advancing through strange portals, and before me at the end of a hallway stood a shadow with glowing eyes. You ever had that dream? Yeah, I've had that dream a few times, actually. Speaking of guys with glowing eyes, we have a guest today. We do? Hi. Oh, hi. Hello again. Have you been these past couple of days? Been scavenging for food? <laughs> some hard work, but <laughs> I'm alive. Oh, don't don't scavenge over in my direction. You can go scavenge from John. Mm. <laughs> well, guys, since we're all here, I think I know the movie that inspired this dream. And uh, I've got some reviews of that movie, which I'm going to read to you. I'm going to give you the director's name. Anthony Scott Burns from Canada. Mm. If that helps. Does it? Yeah. Uh, the film's icy cinematography and synth-centric score feel a tad heavy-handed. Still, they collectively help the director to approach his Cronenbergian levels mm. of paranoia-infused terror, even though he doesn't quite get there. May I just point out that we have several compound adjectives in the review? Synth-centric, heavy-handed, Cronenbergian... Paranoia-infused. Here's another uh, quip. It's Burns, just his second feature, but he exhibits a real knack for world-building, mythology-making, and crafting real tension. But a series of stumbles in the film's final act end the film on a wearisome final point. So both a little bit critical. Reviews tend to be that way. And uh, the final one... Part of what makes this movie, and they name it, uh, so effective is the sense that Burns is completely in control of his vision and is confidently strapping you into a bleak theme park ride straight to the center of your own psyche. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Come true. 2020. That's right. That's incredible, John. Mm -hmm. Never have I been able to stump you. Yeah, well. I have an encyclopedia of uh, movie knowledge. Next time, I'm just going to do like one review and see if that if that doesn't get you. Maybe next next time you should just have a, a dream of a review in the tent next to me, and mm -hmm. I'll connect to you through the collective unconscious. <laughs> we could do that, too. Yeah, I mean, that's option, option B, I would say. <laughs> John, can you uh, talk a little more about the collective unconscious? Oh, well, I think that we should probably define some terms so that we're all working off the same... I don't know. Definitions. So, with <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. So, there's four sections of this movie, and I would say that they're lightly seasoned into the film, but they're still prominently presented. So, I figure that it's worth defining them. This movie is cut into four sections first section being the persona, second section, uh, anima and the animus, third section, the shadow, and then the fourth section, the self, right? That's, that's how it was sectioned out. Yeah. Persona essentially being a social mask that is 
portrayed to others of the person. So it's their front-facing social side. The definition of the anima and animus is sort of that same idea, but the facing side to the collective unconscious. And that section is wildly confusing to me. So if others have more information on that, great. The shadow, as I understand it, is essentially created by negative feedback from social interaction. And so then part of the personality is then sectioned off to the shadow, which are traits that that are socially unacceptable. The repressed uh, things that we want to do, but society won't let us do. Repression. Right, yeah. And then uh, the self, sort of the unified unconscious and consciousness of an individual that is the the whole package. Aren't you the whole package, John? Well, yeah, but not in Jungian terms. Union or Jungian? (laughs) So this is some kind of, uh, this is some kind of, uh, it's, it's a psych, it's a theory in psychology, psych, psychotherapy that to, uh, reach one's ultimate humanness, the fourth stage of the self is where, where we all want to wind up. Is that true? Well, the goal is to broaden the self as much as possible over time through individuation. From, from, society's uh repressive messages well the whole package so you want to broaden your own individuality through self-experience of the unconscious and collective unconscious as well as building a a strong persona and challenging yourself to become as a a full broadly experienced individual so Jung has a whole, not a whole, but he has his own sort of thought process around this. And it it sort of sits in its own category. It isn't necessarily the same for every approach to therapy. So he he has his little theories and his own approach, but I wouldn't generalize that across the entire experience of therapy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get that there were those section headings. Um, but the end of the movie does not seem like a positive fruition of uh, Sarah, the main character's uh, development. And I also don't see how the uh, ending and the whole thing about being in a coma meshes at all with the Jungian overlay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I was saying it's sort of lightly seasoned, but not baked into the movie, <laughs> <laughs> to use cooking terms. I really like this movie, and then I, I, I went searching for reviews and um, was surprised at how negative the reviews were. People really bashed it, but I think uh, the reviews helped me to realize some incongruities that I uh, hadn't noticed before. And then I read an interview with the director, uh, Burns, and he made it sound like, yeah, he, he knows that there's all these inconsistencies. And I guess he watched some documentary about nightmares, which was called Nightmare. And um, that that inspired him. And he actually said that he had this dream as a kid. I guess his mother died. The director's mother died quite when he was like 11. And he had this dream of, uh, of, a, of a shadowy figure with uh, sitting on the edge of his bed. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, he and, and yeah, uh, so he was like and then, yeah, just kind of the, uh, the, the interview sort of sounded like a like a stoner college student kind of um, 
I, I was a little unimpressed by uh, the director's uh, thoughts about his own movie. But yeah, he was basically like, you know, I think the unconscious is cool. And I had this crazy dream as a kid. And uh, I had this idea about what if we all had this dream about the shadowy figure. And so I made this movie. <laughs> and it, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like he he uh, has heard of Jung and maybe watched a couple of YouTube videos. I don't want to bash this guy too much, but it's like he just kind of threw it all into a blender. And, and then I was like, damn, I really enjoyed this movie. But now I'm like, I feel kind of like I, I uh, bought in a little too hard. So you got duped? Yeah, I think I got. I mean, it was it was the, just the filmmaking, like the music was like perfect. And I was wearing my my super duper headphones. And so I could hear every like click and every rustle of wood in those dream sequences. And, and it was just like the film engrosses me, engrossed me at least um, in a way that hadn't happened uh, in a long, long time. So like that that review I read about the director being um, in control of his vision, I, I could not agree more with that. Just, just the, the, the feeling of getting strapped in and, uh, and taken on this ride was, uh, even if the movie doesn't make any sense, which it doesn't for me right now, uh, just the, the, the viewing experience was, uh, absolutely mesmerizing. Like I literally couldn't walk away from the movie. Hmm. And that's why you, you caught your pants. Cause you well, couldn't... I do that at the end of most movies, just kind of a <laughs> ritual that I have, but yeah, I was thinking of this movie as a, as a parallel, like a album experience when you listen to an album that sounds really good and you get sucked into it and then you pay attention to the lyrics and you're yeah. like wait a second like what's this guy talking about like the tone of it and and the production of it yeah you get captured by the movie but when you start looking a little closer at it you start seeing the blemishes and you're like what 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 did i really see here like what so i i don't i think it was a good movie i i also enjoyed the movie and we can go through i kind of mark some areas in which it was reflective of young but I think you gotta you gotta amp up the U a little bit. It's, it's Jung. You want more Jung as opposed to Jung sounds like Y O U N G. Want more Jung? I want yeah. <laughs> want full Jung? <laughs> I don't know about the upward intonation, mm. but mm-hmm. you gotta purse your lips a little more on the Jung. Okay. Yeah. So we could do a plot line piece, but I do think we should. I know we defined the terms a little bit in the beginning, but I th- it's tough to pull the. Jungian pieces away from the actual <laughs> plot. So I think we should focus on that first and then try and land the, the plot. Pieces? Okay. The, the, yeah, and try and land the plot within Jung. that. So <laughs> <laughs> it helps if you punch yourself in the diaphragm. <laughs> so the little pieces that I saw, first there was a huge reference to horror movies within this. There was reference to Night of the Living Dead, to George Romero, the director of the program he was referred to as myers i don't know if it's a michael myers reference yeah i was i was gonna add two other the the terminator poster in uh in riff's office mm-hmm. and um yeah that was all i was gonna say actually oh wow well thanks for yeah. sharing and then uh <laughs> and then the philip the philip the philip, uh, the philip k dick uh bookstore uh scene i don't i don't know uh i've never read any philip k dick but i believe he was a horror of some kind author he did a lot of science fiction, and I looked up that book. That book, and we could like really have a two-parter on this movie. First part, sort of the discovery that we're having now, and then a second part to more like refine why these pieces were in the movie. And so, another reference was that the room, the hospital room that mm-hmm. Sarah was in, was two thirty-seven, which is the same hotel room in The Shining. So there's these little little specs that he added that were a reference to other horror movies but 
uh, I don't remember whether he said this in that interview or not, but it's kind of this, I think he did that. It's like, you know, when you dream, your mind takes these little snippets from, from, um, you know, your, your day's experience or your life experience and the random stuff in the hallway. Like as we were advancing towards the shadow figure, you know, the, the, the Jack in the box and the phone that's ringing and stuff is just like normal everyday objects. Um, so I think he was in, in the, through in the movie making itself, you know, the whole question is like at the end, is Sarah in a coma or it was the whole movie a dream or did she fall into a coma at some point in the movie before which it was reality? And so it's like uh, maybe maybe all those, uh, I guess, pop culture references um, kind of drive with that notion of of our minds uh, populating our brains with everyday objects. Yeah. And it said at the very end that she was in a coma for 20 years or something like that. Yeah, it was 20 years and no, almost 20 years. And, uh, I, one of my thoughts initially was that everything felt roughly eighties, early nineties to me, like the Terminator poster and weekend of Bernie's. I didn't know. <laughs> There's a weekend of Bernie's poster too. Was it really? Yeah. And the beginning was in her bedroom. I did not see that, but yeah. And then, and, but everybody had smartphones at the same time. So I was like, is this just a really huge oversight or is this, and, and, and then, so yeah, I think, um, that leads me to believe, I guess, uh, to, to lean towards the theory that she was in a coma the whole time and her coma began sometime in high school when she, when it was the eighties and now it's whatever, but she's, she's populating her coma dreams with, uh, little little bits of modernity like her cell phone. So, but how could how could she have experiences with cell phones in a coma if she fell into a coma when she was in high school in the eighties? I don't know. The cell phone, I believe, was the mode of communication, the modern mode of communication to her in her coma. So it's twenty years later, and so smartphones exist, and I think the smartphone was representation of trying to communicate with someone presently. That was the the mode that was being channeled through was the cell phone that was my guess what does it mean though like if she falls into a coma when she's 18 in the in the 80s let's say never mm -hmm. having seen a cell phone how does she come to have coma dreams about cell phones this is where you start to have the plot breakdown i, I think as an audience member the cell phone represents their mode of communication with her presently i think as her in a real life situation she would have never experienced a cell phone, so how could she have a perception or a dream of it? So, in, in her in her dream, is she looking at like a landline or a note on the toilet, and then it just appears as a cell phone to us because that's what the people trying to rescue her are using? We should consider this as a artist's rendition as opposed to a documentary. In that, so yeah, I guess in your your ask, technically. If it was seen purely through her eyes, then it would have been a, a, yeah, a telephone or a fax. <laughs> Definitely a fax. Yeah. Fax would probably make the most sense. Can I just go through the little sections here as, as he pulls out the different Jungian uh, references? So for the persona, I saw this movie's trying to do a lot. It's a plot that's enjoyable or coherent, let's say, through A to Z. But then he's also trying to add these Jungian sort of principles. So within the persona section, the only real persona areas that seem to be highlighted in the movie were that Sarah was 
communicating with her friends who she's staying with about superficial things and as opposed to talking about the difficulties that she's having. So she's homeless. She's kicked out of her parents' house, evidently. And so she's trying to find a place to stay. And instead of talking to her friend about these deep-seated concerns, she's just sort of superficially saying, thanks, I'm glad that I could stay here. Uh, I'm just happy that there's a bed, you know? And so that's a, maybe a persona trait of not talking about the things that are much more difficult. And then she does have a dream there where she's encroaching on a desk, like a school desk that has a bunch of knives in it. So kind of a representation of the conflict between her social experience at school and her repressing that in a symbolic, I hate school kind of illustration. Mm -hmm. So that's another kind of idea of pushing into the persona of, I need to be appropriate and I don't like school because it conflicts with who I truly am and having to deal with all these other personas in a sense. Uh, so that, that was the two pieces within that quarter of the movie that I saw as representations of the persona. I don't know if you guys saw additional or anything in regard to that. Uh, she does drink a lot of coffee. Um, if, if that can be a symbol for trying to, she, so she's not sleeping well because of these shadow dreams. And uh, she drinks the coffee to to uh, function at school, presumably, and also to to uh, to stay awake. Um, you know, maybe for society's benefit in some way. I thought it was interesting that n no hint is given at all of what the troubles are at home. There's one interaction where her mother kind of catches her, but she just she sleeps out in the in the playground and she sneaks home after mom leaves to take showers and grab her stuff. So yeah, there's you know was was whatever that family trauma. Is that what cued the shadow dreams or are the shadow dreams this uh, totally unconnected secondary phenomenon? And because she's basically homeless and she's also getting bullied in, at school. So, I mean, there's a lot of potential causes for nightmares, I guess. Yeah. And to consider the concepts of the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. So there's scenes where the camera pushes in it. It always pushes in in a linear way. There's there's nothing dynamic to it. It's like on a track. So you see it push into what appears to be a personal unconscious where you see a figure and maybe there's a representation of an object in front of the individual. And then it pushes past that person and then goes into what I would describe as the collective unconscious when you start to see the guy with the eyes. So the guy with the eyes is some archetype of the collective unconscious. Would you guys agree with that? There's also the other human figures kind of hanging from ceilings or, or tacked onto walls and stuff. Is that is that the personal or the collective, would you say? I would say that's the personal. So those people are what uh, um what what do you what, what are we meant to make of those human forms? It wasn't clear and I think that's where the permission is given to the director where he's providing us with emotional art that looks cool but has no real reference to Sarah. I think that was supposed to represent the individual unconscious, but to be able to see that and extract it to a particular thing within Sarah, I think is the movie doesn't provide that to us. I think that it looks cool, but having legs on a wall or, you know, someone approaching you with a bunch of legs, it's maybe you could say <laughs> something that she's running from something or, along those lines, but it would be 
we would just be guessing. At least I would be. I don't know. You guys might have a different opinion. I guess you do have to, uh, if, if you have to hide and repress all these socially unacceptable parts of yourself, then that act in and of itself is, is isolating. It's like a, a paradox in a way. You have to put on a mask so that you'll be acceptable to the society. But in the putting it on, you break your real connection to, to people because you can't be honest and you can't be open about all your all your weirdness. And that's definitely a part of like growing up too. I don't know if her age is significant here, but um, I, I assume that one learns how to put on the mask uh, through puberty and, and uh, early adole- and, and adolescence. And so then it pushes into the anima and animus. Riff is brought in as a main character. And I think that he was supposed to represent the male animus and that Sarah was then placed into the anima. There's this fluidity that kind of plays out because there's a section where they're making out and they kind of combine together. So there's this interaction between two of them and to give into more into the plot later, she kills him. And I think that that was a representation of her killing the male side or the animus side, which I don't even know if that's a thing that one does within uh, a union process. But I felt like Riff was the male side, and at some point Sarah became the female side. So that's those are the, just the references that I saw to the anima and animus. And then the shadow section, I think, was the least coherent. And I, I believe that the director didn't quite understand what the shadow was, because in the in the movie, when that section starts, there's literally a shadowy figure that's lurking around and terrorizing people that didn't appear to be the glowy-eyed person. So it felt like he was seeing the shadow too literally, like you would have a dream about a shadowy figure. And that that's not really kind of how it plays out. So I felt like that was probably the least clearly represented union archetype. And then the self at the very end where she's sort of coming to understand her situation, literally a journey through the woods as she's trying to become herself. Then at the end, she like grows fangs. And so my thought on this was that the whole idea of tapping into the shadow is to take these socially unacceptable ideas and try and accommodate them into your self and stop separating yourself from the shadow. And so I thought that the fangs were a representation of her internalizing and weaponizing positive things about the shadow that she had pushed to the unconscious because it was socially inappropriate. But mm. I just kind of like did this on my own. So I don't know if <laughs> another person would think differently or if there's like a thorough review. Uh, but those are the little symbolic representations of those four sections that appeared to me. Yeah, the, in the anima and the animus part is, is when uh, Riff and Sarah meet. They don't begin as lovers until the end in the self part though i i remember and i took notes on that so that that sex scene when um the two shadows come that seems to be the point where she enters the coma if there's any clearly defined point and he takes her to the hospital and all that that's in the that's in the self part and then yeah just the whole thing about the shadows coming into the actual waking world and and stealing two of the other sleep study participants and, and uh, I don't know, just it's like, what do you do with all those little 
those just seem like sort of horror movie elements that are that are part of it. And I don't see any connection to the Jungian overlay in that regard. That's where it's movie, I think, is trying to do a lot. It's trying to show an entertaining and emotionally engrossing vision and then also kind of hang it on these Jungian ideas and also make it a horror movie that is scary. So you have to have these jump scares and, and tension building situations. And then you want to have a story that in itself is interesting. It does all of them well. I don't think it does any of them perfectly. One of the reviews that I read um, proposed that this is Jungian psychology as interpreted by a random movie critic. But they said that the the scene where she, towards the end, where she wakes up and uh, discovers that she's gouged out Riff's eyeballs and killed him represents the anima killing the animus, which I guess is a bad thing from Jung's point of view. You want the anima and the animus to reach some kind of harmony. So what what do, what do we make of that uh, victory of, of, of Sarah over Riff of the anima over the animus? Is that anything? With the research study, there was more men than women. So there was just her. And at one point, one of her dropped out. Yeah. One of her, yeah. one of the females, let's say. But I was thinking more of a part of her. So it's a male-dominated research study. And her then going in and killing. This is where it starts to get complex. I don't know it fully. The anima and the animus is representations of masculine and feminine traits, you could say. And that is largely channeled into the collective unconscious. So the collective unconscious, if we should define it, is it's sort of this inherited unconscious um, mound of information that we are we are given at birth that comes to us almost genetically. And it's through years and years and years of human experience that is distilled down, and then we have the access to it, and we can pull up you could say it's psychological traits from it. And so the idea is that you want to have a masculine category and a feminine category. And if you kill off one, well, then you only have the feminine category and then you start to get lopsided. It's good to be, let's say, emotionally aware, if you want to say that's a feminine trait, but then you also want to be objectively driven, which one could say is a masculine trait. And if you kill one of those off, then you will become too focused on one aspect of potential that could skew you. And the idea is you want to keep all the <laughs> rocket boosters. <laughs> yeah. So, but again, like these are just my understandings of it. If you guys have a different understanding of it, then. Where's the line between just like social conditioning and the so-called collective unconscious, like, you know, boys are meant to wear blue and girls are meant to wear pink and, uh, and boys, don't wear dresses. And I mean, some of this just boils down to gender um, roles and, um, and things that we learn certainly after birth and through environment. There's nothing genetic about the fact I would, I, I would imagine that boys are meant to prefer blue and girls are meant to prefer pink. So what exactly, I'm not saying that the collective unconscious is, a, I don't think you said it was actually genetic, but it's almost as powerful. So like, is there a difference between those kind of social conditions that we all take on versus what what Jung was about. I think within the union idea 
is that there are certain nurturing things that society tells us we should emulate. But I think he would also say, because his, his psychology was very loose, it would say, well, if there's a bunch of people saying that, then there's likely a collective unconscious parallel that's pushing people in that direction. There is a, one could say, a, a nurturing component to that that isn't driven by a genetic component, but that is almost as powerful or equally as powerful as there being a genetic component, a uh, psychologically genetic component. I would think that, and the kind of way I look at it is, testosterone as a chemical does strange things. And a male has more testosterone circulating in its body than a female. So if, if we want to think of it, even on a biochemical measure, is what does having testosterone cycling in your body for decades, even when you're in the womb, how does that change how you behave? How does that how does that influence the way you think? How does that influence the way that you move through the world? And then you could say, okay, well, that's the masculine way of operating. And if you don't have that chemical animating you, well, that's the feminine uh, process. So why should why should a full realization of of the self, the fourth stage, why should that involve overcoming what's part of our nature? Why is it better, which I assume Jung would have said, why is it better to unify these disparate, the the anima and the animus and, and the unconscious and the conscious, rather than just be the being that you were popped out of uh, to be? This is a um, paradoxical in a sense. The idea that you should, that your individuality is incredibly important. So you as a person should be as you are and not feel the influence socially to conform. But there's also information that is provided through the collective unconscious that you should tap into and be aware of and help it shape you in a way that you benefit as much as you can from that. And there are certain ma masculine and feminine values within that collective unconscious that you should be aware of to help you exercise areas of your psyche that are underdeveloped. So be as best as you can as an individual. Individualism is champion, but also look inside of you to the collective unconscious and, and learn from these things bubbling up in you because they've propelled the species to the way where it's at now. And if you underestimate the value in that, well, then you're not getting the full maximum benefit that you could broadly. One review I read, it was about the anima and the animus part of the movie. And Riff is, um, there's a lot of senses in which he behaves really inappropriately. Like he obviously seems to stalk Sarah in the bookstore. And then he uh, looks through the video camera at her sleeping and then follows her into the movie theater. So there's kind of these elements of like, creepy or, or toxic masculinity if that is somehow connected to the animus i don't know but then at the same time he's he's got anima traits he's he's if if i'm right about what those are he's he's kind of you know he's insightful he's inquisitive he always is a scientific he waits for the data and he's curious and he, he's gentle sometimes there's some scenes where sarah especially when she freaks out about how she how he is behaving uh sarah yells and screams at him and and Rift does not yell and scream back. He kind of takes it and, and is gentle and, and he's also kind of nerdy. So if, if those are anima traits, 
he he would represent both animus and anima. So that just to put that out there, I don't know uh, if if Riff is a, uh, and then of course Riff gets killed in the end by Sarah, who has vampire fangs. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, yeah. There's there's just all these uh, cool ideas that seem about an inch deep um, <laughs> in terms of trying to analyze it. So I was suggesting that the the fangs were a representation of the internalization of her shadow and then her positively weaponizing that. It also could be that she consumed Riff and then made that a part of her as opposed to feeling it was separate. So him being the, the animus, she killed him, but by the vampire teeth suggesting that she consumed him. And now, she, now it's a part of herself. Do you think there's any purpose when 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 uh, they first have sex? I, I I'm assuming those two sex scenes are the same act of intercourse. Maybe I'm wrong, but like in the first one, he's on top, you know, sort of, and there's there's lots of thrusting, and you could say the male is the agent in that sexual position, and then and then the shadow, the two shadows come up behind Riff as he's thrusting, and then she goes into the coma. But then when she, when she's Back, uh, gouging his eyes out, she's in a more dominant sexual position. Is there anything to that? Is it the fact that he's like being aggressively masculine or, or animus e in the first scene that causes the shadow figures to rise up in her and trigger some kind of revolt against her anima side? And, and I mean, you can run with that all day, but trying to reclaim that section of her that maybe became. Overly dominated. By but at the same time, there, there wasn't any suggestion that I received from the way that was filmed that she was uncomfortable or feeling, you know, unempowered or uh, uh, in a passive role either. She didn't, at least that wasn't communicated to me uh, through the scene. There's lots of room one could explore within that. And if you want to refer to kind of union interpretation that there's a lot of interpretation within the process. So you can kind of run with it in many different directions. And that's part of the reason why it's maybe not as maybe kind of fell out of favor is because there's no concrete process to it. And there's a lot of interpretive elements. And if you're in a therapeutic hierarchy, let's say, then one would have the power of suggesting that their dreams or their experiences were this as opposed to one coming to their own interpretations. And either way, even if you came to an interpretation, how would that really value you overall? But anyways, so I thought all those interchanges were representing the interplay between the anima and the animus within a front-facing collective unconscious experience. Whether that was obvious in the movie or what the director intended, that's the way I interpreted it, that all those processes was just kind of a churn that was kind of stumbling, but was also enriching, if you want to say that. Like enriching to the self. There's also that scene in, in the self part where Sarah, where Riff, I guess, has taken Sarah home after the hospital episode, uh, where she goes to the dance club to search for Zoe and winds up puking and passing out in the bathroom. Then after that is when the self quarter of the movie starts and Sarah seems to be in Riff's apartment uh, sleeping on the couch and then she wakes up and Riff has strapped himself to his bed and all his equipment and she watches Riff have a dream about herself 
which was a really cool scene. I thought, what would it feel like to watch someone else's dream about you? That's just kind of, I guess, where I'm settling with this movie is like there's these incredibly, and the music plays a big role, there's these incredibly powerful scenes and they're very moving. And um, it's not like jump scares, although there are a couple. It's more about just like, I don't know, it's just just uh, really, really uh, catches your your attention and, and absorbs your emotions. And then, um, but, uh, you know, if we try to apply that scene to this larger Jungian framework, how does, how does Sarah entering Riff's apartment and, uh, seeing her animus dream about connecting with the anima contribute towards that resolution, which would lead towards the self. In that scene that Brian's talking about, there's an interesting part where she's watching the dream and, from his perspective, Riff's perspective, he's looking into Sarah's eyes and I think she's wearing sunglasses and he sees his reflection and he has fangs and then it like melds into her eyeballs and it's vice versa. And then she has fangs. And I think it kind of goes to Brian's other point. It's visually nice and uh, interesting to watch. I immediately thought of um, the horror movie aspects of that, like where, you know, like one vampire turns another vampire right like and i kind of view that as like oh this whole time he's been sort of leading her you know he's running the study and he's kind of showing her this idea she has this dream and she doesn't know anything about it and he's like well we've all been having this dream with this shadowy figure and he's kind of leading her and he kind of like turns her so to speak i I don't know that's kind of what brian was speaking to there's not much to make of that or even what you were talking about the end she has the fangs like i mean maybe it's a a a melding of the animal or the animus but it it ultimately didn't turn into anything i think she was uh drenched in blood from the waist down which i didn't really understand if his eyes getting gouged out caused all that blood to be there or if it was something about menstruation or or uh maybe losing her virginity or something but the the fangs have an obvious connection to to vampires and vampires and blood and what if uh she is still in a dream or in a coma and seeing the fangs in her own mouth is just a way to make sense and process all the blood on her body because of that connection between blood and vampires what did you guys think of the ending like the idea of because there's no real reason why she has to be in a coma. And I, I, I can see the, as Brian's illustrating the way that that was traced in the movie in different ways. And I didn't really see that, but I can, as, as you describe those scenes, I can, I can reflect and say, Oh yeah, I could see a connection there, but was it necessary for her to be in a coma? I guess so, because that's how it was written. But like when I saw that piece, I was considering, Hmm, does that make this movie less valuable or is that an easy way out or is this an essential plot element? That's the two things I was thinking of because it could just exist. And she, I don't know how it would end differently. I don't have an alternative ending idea, but I felt like it was kind of an easy out, but I don't know how, how that impacted your viewing of it. Yeah. I, I felt it was very clumsy and simple where throughout most of the movie, it was very ambiguous. Um, you know, what was reality and what was a dream. And there was a little bit of going back and forth. And obviously like when she wakes up or she appears to wake up and has gouged Riff's eyeballs out, like then you're immediately like, Oh, what, what is real? What isn't real? Or what, you know, what is a dream still? And then 
that text message was kind of not in line with the rest of the film. That's what I felt when I saw it. I was like, oh, so she's definitely in a dream state. It's like obvious as opposed to leaving it up to to us to kind of figure out which part is real and which isn't. I don't know what to make of the ending. I, I don't want to believe that it's just a cop-out way to end, but I mean, it's possible. And that's what some reviews said. If it is uh, meant to be a factual element in the movie that she is in a coma, then I have to believe that the people sending that message at the end are the sleep researchers. But that raises its own whole, whole host of problems because they've been in the coma too, or one assumes so, unless there's some branch off that occurs where she and Riff go off and have their personal relationship. But even then, the other one, uh, Anita, the female researcher, she's in, she's involved in that scene where they walk through the woods forever. So, I mean, there, there's a there's an unresolvable melding of uh, the researchers and the dreams in her coma, if it is a coma. So, who is sending that message would, would need to be addressed. And why is she dreaming about... If she's dream, if everything that appears in the coma dreams had to happen before the coma, then she was part of the research study before the coma, and she was engaged sexually with Riff before the coma, and then and then you can pinpoint where the coma was entered. Um, who sent it would be my question. This is where the movie is trying to do multiple things. It requires coherence, and I believe that if Sarah was in a coma from the beginning until the end and she was having dreams connecting to the collective unconscious, her personal unconscious, that it would be so wildly unrecognizable as a movie because it would be... Because the idea of the collective unconscious is that it's communicating with us as clearly as it can, but its language isn't clear to us. So it's representing itself in symbols and ideas that that we have to interpret because... It's you could call it primitive, I guess, because it's so uh, such a basic substance within the psyche. But if the movie was just that, it would just be incoherent, except for small sections of it. So it's having to display sections of interacting with the collective unconscious while still having an interesting plot line. Back to my idea of it having four different functions, maybe. And so if you try and push one down and say, well, how come in this line of thinking that it doesn't make sense and i think you have to defer to the other function of the movie and say well because it needs to be coherent and entertaining not to say we shouldn't analyze it at that level but i think that's where it starts to degrade is when you look at any particular thread because in order to make the movie worth watching maybe is that it has to all do all these functions without any of them being clear enough to be pure i guess there's the idea, too, that the cell phone message at the end is meant to be for the viewer. What are your thoughts about that? What do you mean? Do you think that it's um, a message for Sarah or that the movie is saying that we are all in some kind of coma and we need to mm. we need to wake up? Because, I mean, it is, the, it is the final scene in the movie and there's that really slow pan from her face in the mirror over to the toilet. <laughs> Maybe. I don't particularly feel like I'm in a coma. <laughs> if if you're if you're only on stage one two or three of the Jungian path towards stage four, then in a sense your lived experience is, is not the true one. So in that sense, you're all in a coma. 
So, I mean, is, is the point of the ending to encourage us all to go read Jung or to uh, to learn more about psychoanalysis? Or um, I guess that would be my interpretation is that Burns really just wants everybody to, to go learn about Jung. Watch the same YouTube video he did. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea of the collective unconscious, what are your opinions on this as to its, not necessarily its function, but its presence? Do you believe that it exists? Right. <laughs> in real life, not the movie. Yeah, like stepping outside of the movie and thinking about Jungian psychology, do you believe that the collective unconscious is a thing, like a real thing? I would say I do not believe in it. Um, it it's interesting as a concept to think about, but I'm skeptical, I guess I would say, because it's so greatly shaped by our collective conscious, I would say, like the way we experience what's going on. I don't know. I mean, I can't remember the way you exactly defined it, but it's kind of based on a historical or greater understanding through through time for all of humanity, right? So I'll define it again and okay. correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a distillation of everyone's psychic experiences that one then inherits as they're bored. Thinking of, I think it's something like, there's a two million year old man in all of us. That's kind of the idea is that going back to the origin of species in a sense that all of those experiences are distilled down. And then when you're born, then you, you have access to them. If you take the time to consider them or, or allow them into your world and sleep was the, or through dreams was the mode of connecting to it because you're essentially in your own personal unconscious as you're asleep, which then puts you closer to the collective unconscious. It appears to be that there is a symbolic representation of past events that you can interpret and learn from. But the other piece, which feels more practical as encapsulated in the same idea is that if a baby is born, the natural seeking of, I don't know, suckling to a nipple would be under that same guise. It's not that a baby was born and then they saw someone breastfeeding and said, hey, that looks like a good idea. I'll do that. So it's not like they were born without any knowledge or psychic structure and then objectively learned through perception. It was that when they came into the world, they already had a, a, a structure that they could pull from. And then that's how they started to nurse. And that's they learn part of the world through exploration, but they also have been provided a psychic structure as well. And that would be one part of the collective unconscious. So it sounds like you're sort of explaining what people call a like natural ability or like, I mean, I think it's probably more obvious in like animals, like how they just learn things or know things when they're born instinct kind of, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not a, it's not an inherent instinct or it is, but it's derived from this collective unconscious is what, the, what you're saying. Yeah. I think Jung would say that instinct is part of the collective unconscious. Mm. Interesting. W would you agree with that, Brian? I don't fully understand the term, despite your attempts to explain it. I have two concerns. One, it seems way too capacious. It's way too, it can handle anything, any any unexplainable phenomenon or um, urge or uh, mysterious feeling we have can be tossed into this very large bucket that has the collective unconscious label on it. 
mm-hmm. and that is unscientific and um, that is not acceptable to my, you know, it needs, it needs more definition, whether it has that definition and the three of us just don't know it or whether it lacks that definition. I do not know, but mm-hmm. uh, as explained by you and um, from what little I know of it, it's, it's far too, uh, far too large and of, of a bucket. Anything can be put there. Apparently. One quick slice on that is that just to differentiate between the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. So if I have a feeling or something's being elicited in me, it could be because an event happened to me when I was younger and I've suppressed that, or it's it's something that is outside of the persona, which I've then pushed down into the shadow. It comes up, but that wouldn't be part of the collective unconscious. That'd be part of your personal unconscious, just to get a little bit of a difference in... Mm -hmm. So I, I, I certainly believe that people are warped in their childhood. I think we need an example to illustrate this. I'm trying to think of one that isn't overly personal. And, and this might cue into the movie, but I mean, there's, there, uh, Sarah seems unwilling to, to express to others the troubles she's having, the, these nightmares. She doesn't want to... Uh, Zoe prods her to open up, and maybe her, her flight from home is a symptom of her... She's trying to hide trouble. So maybe maybe in her childhood, her view of parental nurturing was warped because of insufficient displays of parental nurturing. She had issues as a five-year-old, and she went to her mother to seek comfort, and mother was unable to provide that comfort or uh, was absent or something like that. So, so she grows up with this warped approach to managing her own troubles and she won't she won't confide in others and she doesn't seek support from external people okay so i get i uh i fully agree that those psychological issues exist in people you're saying mm-hmm. that's a personal unconscious mm-hmm. correct yeah okay. first of and, all I, what's unconscious about it one can easily with minimal reflection there's an additional element i think that the term unconscious would imply is that we're also burying the fact that we in her case in this example She's she's ignorant of and trying to hide the fact that she does not seek help from other humans. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't strike me as ignorant of, or it's not obvious that she's ignorant of that fact. So I don't see what this, this whole idea of an unconscious, she has this warp in her personality, this way of operating, which means she doesn't go and seek help from others. If she's aware of that, it would be conscious. If she's unaware of that, it would be unconscious. Mm-hmm. So it seems... Like that's not that line is not clearly drawn, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And then further, just this term of unconsciousness implies that you need a therapist or you need some kind of treatment or you need some kind of meditative insight to realize it. And I think the passage of time helps a lot with realizing the way you were brought up. Just getting older, one naturally as an adult comes to view their parents differently and realize the strengths and weaknesses of their parent and, and perhaps blame their parents less for those warpings that occurred. So there's, there's nothing that requires sitting and staring at your navel in a meditative state, nor visiting a therapist. Part of this hidden warping uh, is, is made unhidden just by the act of growing older. So this, this whole idea of unconsciousness is just unclear to me. That's a good point. And some individuals say there, there isn't an unconscious. There was a used to be aware. So at some point you were aware. And at some point you went to your mother and she was unavailable to you. And you were quite clear of that experience. But because that was such a challenging 
time and the mother was the only thing that you could have gotten support from at that point in, in time. And now, now that's collapsed as your support structure. And that's just not something I'm willing to tolerate. So then I will suppress it. And then it becomes part of the unconscious as I navigate the world from there. And I have trouble developing a relationship, but I don't necessarily know why. And the defense mechanism that's deployed the most is projection. So then it's, well, it's not my problem. It's my boyfriend's problem, my girlfriend's problem. That's the reason why I have trouble in a relationship. And I'm so at that point, it would be within the category of unconscious because you're projecting an experience you had previously that you're not operating on awareness of and it's interfacing in your life. And then as you get older, you say, oh, well, my mother was working three jobs, so she couldn't have been there for me. And then on reflection of how I have been feeling previously, then I don't have as much concern about abandonment or something like that. And then I then operate with more function. And now that it's been pulled out of the unconscious and now it's part of the conscious. But yeah, so in your question or you're kind of posing this is that technically it, it was always in the consciousness. It was just suppressed. And the idea of pure unconsciousness doesn't exist. It was something I used to be aware of. It's not that it is purely unconscious. It's that I, I don't remember it fully kind of a thing. And then underneath that is where Jungian's kind of putting in this collective unconscious where it's an inherited trait or a behavior that the human species has found to be effective. And so now it's literally linked into me. And so when I'm born, I seek a nipple, not because I'm, I know this is where food comes from, but because it's an inherited behavior trait that is what that was, that is part of the collective unconscious along with, and this is where it gets more based on myth or something along those lines is it also steers my ethics. It also steers my, I don't know, spirituality or, or something along those lines. And by sleeping and thinking of dreams, I can interpret things from the collective unconscious, which is very difficult to experience and only through dream, because when I'm awake, those things I am completely unaware of. So just to give that as a maybe a layering of the individual unconscious is what I used to know. And then the collective unconscious is what I've inherited through generation of human development. That's clear that that definition you're making about something I used to know, but I'm thinking of the five-year-old who goes to, if, if this is Sarah in the movie, goes to their mother and doesn't receive. This has to happen over many, many attempts at comfort, right? It's not just a, a one-off event that, that would spiral the child into some personal unconscious uh, habit of of not seeking help from other humans it would have to be repeated over time i would i would imagine mm -hmm. um i'm not sure what level of of knowledge uh, a young child could have of that experience beyond an emotional one they would feel the rejection and they would feel the lack of support and they would feel the continued anxiety of whatever they were suffering from so in that sense they would know it but um I don't know. Uh, so I guess I just have a quibble about this this term "used to know" because you're sort of implying that the knowledge of a of a grown adult, the perspective on their parents and why their parents behaved that way, was the same as the perspective that five year old would have had, which I cannot accept. How do you mean? A, a five year old will not have an insight that says that 
the reason I'm being treated this way is because my mother's father treated her this way or because my dad is too stressed out at work to offer emotional support. The, the five-year-old won't have those thoughts. This is where kind of structure theory comes in where that event happened to me when I was five and I was, I was five and underdeveloped, you could say, or didn't have the development capacity to understand the complexities of the situation. And so as I've gotten older, I've built these structures that I can hang these concepts on like even what a job is. At the five-year-old's experience, there is a linear understanding and consciousness of event. Like, I don't feel good. I know. I found that when I go to my mother, I feel better. I'll do that. And then that propels me. And then my mother's not there. And then significant emotional experience. And then repeat, repeat, repeat. And then distilled into people who are important to me won't be available when I need them most. And then I carry that into my adult life. And then as I get older and I've learned more, then I can kind of chip away at this and understand it more fully. Now it isn't that people who are important to me always are unavailable. It's my mother was working a lot and couldn't be available to me at that time. But over time, I've noticed that other individuals are available to me or that now I have a job and know how busy I am and I could see my mother being busy. And so it wasn't about me. It was about the situation. I'm leaning towards no on the collective unconscious. I absolutely, I, I believe that there are personal attitudes to life that are unhealthy that we learn at a very young age and that uh, those can, some of those perhaps require the insight of a therapist. I guess it depends on how naturally reflective you are, but perhaps, but um certainly can be can be aided by a therapeutic approach but um i don't know what what it means to for them to be unconscious because of the fact that more of it is made conscious the older we get it's like it was it was not in perspective and then it is in perspective is kind of how i would i would uh frame it but the idea i mean you you yourself gave that example of a, a baby suckling at, at at its mother's uh breast i mean i would um not be comfortable calling that an act of the collective unconscious or a product of the collective unconscious. I would just, that to me, that's simple biological, um, the expression of genes. I mean, would you, would you say that the fact that the baby urinates and defecates is part of the collective unconscious too? They were not taught to do that. It just happens naturally. Or is urinating and defecating a purely biological pre-programmed act? I think that the, Retention of urine and feces might be something that's socially learned or maybe exercised, but there are certain behavior traits that are inherited beyond um, just the example of biological experience. So um, it could be something along the lines of my hair grows. Did I learn how to grow my hair? Um, like when you have a child, it's just it has no ability to function in the sense of retaining urine and holding it. It just goes when it feels like it needs to go. And then you kind of learn how to do that in a socially responsible way. I wouldn't put that in a collective unconscious piece. I mean, I'm kind of on the fence. I'm kind of in Brad's category where it's a compelling idea. And I think that when you look at particular behaviors, I could see that there are traits that are inherited that are difficult to explain through learning. Where that cuts into a collective unconscious or not, I, I can't say. I would say that a personal, what I used to know, unconscious, is pretty strong. 
and I would probably put the function of the collective unconscious more into the social collection of morals or expectations. I feel like that's a much more influencing product of an individual than a collective unconscious. And one could say, well, I'm only operating on these social norms because of the collective unconscious, but I think it's more of, I have to operate in a way in which it's appropriate and then therefore see what other people are doing and mirror them. And if there's a bunch of people, then there'll be patterns and trends. And I could see the shadow as being something that I've suppressed and then become part of my personal unconscious of what I used to know that I could do but shouldn't do. But the undercurrent of some thick Ghostbusters 2 ooze that I can tap into and then through symbol understand what the caveman did, I think that would be pretty challenging. And then the other sort of idea is, well, if this exists, then we're pollinating it too. So, okay, so if the collective unconscious works from my experience in which I learned and I passed down to a child, then any amount of information that happens after the ability to fertilize then shouldn't have any level of sophistication in the collective unconscious because I couldn't have passed that down genetically because I'm, I'm too old to birth. So well, maybe not, this, this, uh, not to be crude and not to be harsh, but this, this is just a misunderstanding of uh, the mechanics of evolution. Changes in our DNA happen randomly, and some of them are advantageous, and therefore we produce more offspring that have those traits. And some of them, most of them, are neutral, and some of them are detrimental. Nothing you do changes your DNA at all, in in terms of like what you pass on to your kid. So if you learn how to ride a bike, and that's a stupid example, but uh, it, then then you you have sex and have a kid. That kid is not predisposed in any way to learn how to ride a bike more than they otherwise would have been if you hadn't learned how to ride a bike. So this whole notion that your experiences somehow enter your DNA and and are passed on genetically is just a misunderstanding of how genetics works. Right. And, and so I'm playing into the collective unconscious contribution. If my ability to influence my child through psychic phenomena, because you'd have to inherit that some way would have to end at the point of my ability to reproduce, whether we're talking about whether it's genetically possible or not. If the collective unconscious exists and it's animated by human experience, then the only way that it could move would be through reproduction. Unless people are thinking of this differently. I'm just trying to define how this could function. Unless... The idea is it's a parallel universe of experience that I can both draw from and contribute to until my death, and there's no level of inheritance to it. Well, then how am I going to contribute to it? How can, how can the million-year-old man who I'm pulling from the collective unconscious, how can I even get that data if he couldn't have in some way inserted it? And the only way that it could be inserted, I believe, is through reproduction. So tell me if these are part of the collective unconscious or not after I, after I say what I'm going to say. The, so just to, to get back to the movie, uh, the, the guy with gray or the, the shadowy guy with white eyes could represent like a fear of death. You know, this, this is the end of our, uh, of our persona and the end of all our projects. And, and that's terrifying. And we have to deal with that in order to become fully realized selves. It strikes me that there's something very not unconscious about the fear of death. Everybody's afraid of death. It's perfectly obvious that 
death is terrifying. So what what's unconscious about it? Another potential thing lurking in this bucket that's we're calling the collective unconscious is like our search for meaning in life. We want to we want to believe that our life has a purpose and that that's not just a random burst of of uh, genetic material that is meant to reproduce itself and it's really us in charge and not just our not just our genes and this sort of thing. So again, the search for meaning it lurks behind everything we do. So I get that that in that sense it's 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 unconscious, but at the same time it's very public. Everyone wants to find meaning. If you go to any job, you know, search tips uh article it's going to say find find work that you find meaning so there's something very conscious and out there about the fact that everyone wants to find meaning and same thing with morals like i guess there's two things about morals and you know one is that they're they again they lurk behind everything we do so in that sense they're not they're not part of the the foreground they're part of the background if you want to call that unconscious but at the same time Morals are very conscious. We explicitly teach them to children, for example, and uh, we have laws that explicitly codify them and punish their transgression. And also, they're always changing. Just think of of uh, our attitudes towards things like homosexuality or or interracial marriage, for example. Those have those have radically altered uh, within the past couple of decades. So, where's your where's your million year old man in that regard, and the effect that he's having if if morals are so flexible? Some morals, at least. I grant that many of them are, are pretty solid, but those are just some, some things I scribbled down about this this uh, seemingly difficult term, unconscious. How are we going to wrap this podcast up? <laughs> well, first we have to resuscitate Brad. So <laughs> <laughs> I've actually entered the collective unconscious. I prepared a lot of symbolism around Philip K. Dick, which we haven't quite got to yet, but maybe in the Have third hour. Really? Uh, I mean, I, that's just like <laughs> what I focused on. Cause it's like you said, I was like, I Googled animus and anima like right before this. Cause it's like, what was that? And then I was like, Oh, <laughs> this is like a huge part of the movie that I did not have time to prepare for. It's just not terms <laughs> I was familiar with. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but it's been very interesting. So, yeah. What about, what about Philip K. Dick? I don't know anything about him. You know, he's a science fiction writer. I think he he did a lot of short stories, which have been like brought into popular culture with movies and TV shows and stuff. Um, but he's yeah very focused on the ideas of reality, and he was really he was like born of that beat generation, and so he was a very heavy drug user and kind of the what is real and what isn't real. Um, those elements of the film, I think were there like, um, but I didn't really have a lot to go on. Just, uh, I, I wasn't familiar with that book that our story that she picked up. I can't even remember the name of it. The book was called, um, the plot summary was something that like a company or an organization had figured out how to make robots essentially like replicate <laughs> human beings. And they, and they made a new Abraham Lincoln. And then this, and then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and then this Abraham Lincoln, they were like going to sell to the public through a company. And then uh, I, I <laughs> guess Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> but he, he got shot by a robot, John Wilkes Booth, <laughs> a competitor company. <laughs> <laughs> I think more of the elements are actually, even though he's like an author, they're like represented a lot in the the visual and the feel kind of what you were describing, like his, his books are very, 
tech noir, this weird, a lot of them have like an investigator who's trying to figure out something and it's in the future on a different reality. And so it's that, I mean, Blade Runner is a great example. If you've seen that movie or the, the, the newer one, that's like Philip K. Dick and that, that kind of feel where it's like a blend between, yeah, like the, all the scenes with like printing out the dreams that, that kind of was very Philip K. Dick to me and the way it kind of had a movie's feel. So it's like an intersection of technology and science fiction, maybe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, those are usually together, but yeah. Um, but like future tech, I'll say a little bit like things that don't exist. I guess that's science fiction. Yeah. This is the final thing I'm going to say about this movie. And then I'm going to plug my microphone. Um, (laughs) Sarah seemed happy when she saw her vampire teeth. And I don't feel like that has been addressed. Let's address that now. (laughs) 30 minutes of conversation. (laughs) Or was she happy because she saw the message on the phone? I can't imagine that message would be happiness. <laughs> under the idea of the the end goal of creating a, a healthy self, then assuming that's what was created by the end of that scene, then happiness would be attached to it. That would be kind of like my reasoning for her to be happy more than the fact that she has vampire teeth. It's fitting within the linear process of step then last 15 minutes one should be satisfied watch it leave feeling satisfied all right well yeah so uh this was quite a conversation yeah i mean uh we gotta we gotta get moving on the trail guys yeah it's it's halfway up Yeah. yeah you guys gave me a lot to think about i will catch you around the next switchback or something yeah sounds good i'm gonna Pop open this trail mix and, well, probably fall asleep after all this. (laughs) (laughs) 